And we are talking about how to move from selfish and selfish kind of thinking and ambition to selfless thinking and more along the lines of what God commands us to be as putting others ahead of ourselves. And last week we noted this overview of uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is uh, a key theme and message of the book is observing uh, their selfishness and their arrogance. And it is a problem that is traced really throughout uh, so many of the New Testament letters. You might remember that James, as he writes to uh, his audience, asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. It is within us that we have this this problem. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2 and told them that selfishness and arrogance needed to be put away from them if they're going to be of the same mind and have the same purpose and be united together in Christ. And 1 Corinthians is doing the same thing as Paul teaches them how to move from selfishness to selflessness. We noted last week that really the, the key passage that, that runs through the book is found in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And that there, there be no divisions among you, but that you be not united in the same mind and of the same judgment. That's the goal of the book, is trying to get them to not have divisions, but to be of the same purpose and have the same mind. And, and we saw that God's ultimate purpose is displayed at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 28, where we read there in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, I'd still love to do a whole sermon just from right there, but just just think about what that is saying right there, that if God's intention in how he runs the world is that in verse 29, so that no human being would ever boast in the presence of God, but that all boasting and all glory would only be directed to God. Uh, imagine what that changes and what we think and how we live and what we do. The whole goal of the way the universe is supposed to be is that all glory goes to God. And no one would have any ability to boast in the presence of God. Paul is going to really unpack that idea now as he goes through these next couple of chapters. This morning we're going to spend our time in the first four chapters of, of 1 Corinthians. And you'll notice in chapter 2, he begins to explain the way that he came to the Corinthians so that they would understand that this is truly the purpose by which God runs the world and the purpose by which he wants people to live. And he exemplified it in himself. Notice in chapter two, verse one, Paul speaking. And when I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you 
the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Just stop there. Notice he says, so when I came to you, I didn't try to dazzle you. I wasn't coming to you in brilliant speech, persuasive words of wisdom, wasn't trying to put on a big show for you. In fact, he says, I came to you in weakness and I came to you in fear and in trembling. You, you saw that. You didn't put up a front and go, look at me. I'm the great apostle Paul and here's my facade. I came to you in weakness. You saw it. You saw that I was trembling before you. Why does Paul come to them in that way? Notice in verse five, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Here the Apostle Paul says he never wanted anyone to look at him as anything. He says, when I came to you, I didn't make it about me. And I didn't make a big show. And I didn't dazzle you with my words. And I didn't do something that you'd go, oh, wow, Paul. In fact, I came to you in such a way so that you wouldn't do that because I don't want your faith to rest on people. I want your faith to. To rest on God. And so I want us to get a sense that here are the Corinthians who are putting their their weight and their faith and their value on people and personalities. I'm a Paul. I'm Apollos. We, we follow these people. And Paul says, how dare you? I didn't come to you like that. I intentionally came to you in such a way so that you would never do something like that. He emphasizes that even further in chapter 3, where he tells them at the beginning of chapter 3 in those first four, uh, three verses, he says, now, you guys are acting worldly, fleshly, when you have jealousy and fighting and all of the problems that are going on. And as you align yourselves with, with other people, verse 4, when one says... I follow Paul or another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? I love that line. Don't ever say, well, I'm just being human. God's not a fan of that argument. <laughs> He's not a fan. He says, right, what you're doing is wrong when you are acting in just a mere human way. You're supposed to be transformed. You're supposed to be spiritual. And when you are putting your faith in other people and, and elevating them, you are losing that. And so I love what he says here in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned. This is the big message of these four chapters, the big message of our lesson today. We are nothing but servants. The Apostle Paul says, who am I and who is Apollos that you are making such a big deal out of? We're just servants. We're just doing the task that God has given us. In fact, he amplifies that even more in verse six, chapter three, verse six. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Who's the one doing the real work around here? God. 
Paul says, I'm I'm just a a worker here. I'm just a small piece of the puzzle. God is the reason for the growth. God is the reason why things are at work. I just plant Apollos waters. We are ultimately nothing. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. I, I hope we just feel the power of that. The person who plants, the person who who, who waters, Paul, Apollos, we are nothing. Who is anything? God who gives the growth. And I hope it will resonate in your ears. If the Apostle Paul says, I'm just a servant, I'm nothing. Then what does that mean about us? If I can read the apostle, no, no, Paul, you're an apostle. You're up here. You know, you're amazing. The apostle Paul. And Paul goes, no, servant, just a servant. God gets the glory. I'm nothing. God is the reason. Huge picture that's given to us here about simply seeing ourselves as servants. This is the most important thing that we can do in terms of our mentality is that we should be displaying this truth in what we do and in how we think. And the way we will primarily move ourselves from being selfish to selfless is having this truth. We are nothing but servants. We're nothing but servants. God gets all the glory. We are merely servants. In whatever capacity we have before God, we are simply servants before him and nothing else. That God established it in this way so that he would always get the glory and always get the honor so that no human being would ever steal that that glory that belongs to God alone. And so Paul is deflecting that and saying, you cannot look at us in this way. It should be shameful to us that we would ever see Christians devoting themselves to another human being. It it, it should never happen. There's a, a, a phrase that has been made up over time. I'm curious who came up with it, but I would suppose you've probably heard of the term called preacher itis. And preacher-itis means whatever that guy says, I believe. And wherever he goes, I go. And it's all about him. And wow, this guy's really great. I hope you see Paul goes, that should never happen. That should never happen. Nobody's faith should rest in people. Nobody should put their weight upon the preacher in that kind of way. And yet so often that can be the case. And I submit to you often, I think preachers want that where they try to point to, well, look at all the work I'm doing and look how many baptisms we have and look at all the stuff that that's going on as if that has anything to do with you. The only reason there is ever any strength, any growth, any edification, any anything, Paul says, is because God did it. God did it. We just plant and water We're just throwing seeds around here. That's it. All I do for you is I read this and then yell at you for 30 minutes. That's all that happens here. It's all God. It's all God. God gets the glory. God's the reason for the growth. 
And we should never put our weight or our emphasis upon any human being. And that is what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. You can hear it in Paul's words where Paul is basically saying, how dare you follow me? (laughs) It's not about me. It's always about God. Paul says, I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling so that you wouldn't do that. The glory belongs to God. And in a similar fashion, you see that even among God's people when it comes to leaderships and elderships where they make it about themselves and, you know, look at our authority, look at who we are and things like that. And no matter the role and no matter the work, Paul is saying everybody's a servant. We are simply servants carrying out the task that God has given us to carry out. We are nothing more. We have absolutely nothing else to give you except we're trying to do what God says. That's the picture Paul paints is that we would see ourselves in that light and see that God is the one who gets the glory for anything that ultimately happens in the kingdom of God. And that funnels into the rest of chapter three, because what you'll notice the apostle Paul will do is he starts talking about um, this work that is being done and from verse nine to verse 13 about laying this foundation and others are building upon it and every foundation and every building is ultimately tested by God to see regarding its validity. And he then draws an important conclusion. And I want you to notice in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, You might have a little note by the word you there in your Bible. I hope it does because the word you there is plural. And the problem is in our English, we don't have plural you. Now in the South you do, you all. But we don't really have a plural you. And so you have to kind of, you all, you guys and yous. We've got all kinds of ways we try to say a plural you. And that's what verse 16 is. That is a plural you right there. You all are the temple of God. Here we are as this congregation, as this group of God's people. You are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells among you. Now listen to the very next sentence. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are that temple. I find that to be a chilling statement. Now to understand it, let's back up and get the concept of being the temple and what that means. Whole nother sermon. Don't have time for it. You want to go home today. But first Kings eight, you have the temple dedication. And Solomon is expressing the purpose of that temple. And if I were to sum up that purpose, the temple was the means by which not only Israel, but really all the world 
would come to God. It would be the meeting place where they could come in contact with God and find forgiveness. And so no matter what their sins were, if they turned back to the temple, God who is in heaven would hear that prayer and forgive their sins. The temple then becomes this place to find forgiveness, this place to meet God, to ultimately see God. The scriptures in the New Testament use similar ideas. Remember Jesus' condemnation and how they turned the temple to a den of thieves when it was supposed to be a house of prayer, a place for the world to come and find God. Isaiah prophesies, which Paul quotes about how they were to be a light to the nation, salvation to the ends of the earth. This was the purpose of the temple is the glory of God spreading and people coming in contact with God. And then for Paul to turn around and say, with our mission of how we are to be showing the light to the world so that the world can find God, meet God, find forgiveness, come into contact with him. Anyone who destroys this temple, God will destroy him. How many times have you seen or heard of God's temple being destroyed? How many times a church is divided, fighting explodes the group? How many times has faith been destroyed in the individuals of others as a church has its quarreling and jealousy and arrogance and selfish behavior? How many times have problems arisen to such a degree that the doors are closed and they are no longer the place for people to meet God in that community. How many times that has happened? And I would even like to throw down a little bit of a challenge in this. How many times it'll happen in a, in a body of believers where the claim of the fight and the division is doctrinal? We're dividing over this important issue. But if you got down to the heart of it, it was over personalities. It was over rifts of people. It real they, they used that as the claim. That was the smokescreen. But at the end of the day, it was really about the people. They weren't going to get along. They were not going to figure it out. And so they come up with something to validate the division rather than that really being the reason. As I said, I find the words of verse 17 haunting. God will destroy the one who destroys God's temple. How many many preachers... How many elders, how many Christians are going to be held in severe accountability because they damaged the temple of God, because they harmed the work, they divided a people, they caused fighting 
And there was selfishness rather than selflessness. Huge statement and a huge warning that is being given to us and should be startling to us. That you have here the Apostle Paul not telling the Corinthians, well, here's how you need to solve this. Go start the West Corinthian Street Church of Christ, you know, down. You got to figure this out. You need to work this out. And I think it is such an important picture that Paul gives as well as the scriptures give. Is that I would suppose to you, if I were to ask you, do you think you could be a member of the Corinthian church as you know it in the first 16 chapters? <laughs> like, I don't know that I could. They're a mess. <laughs> They're doing things completely wrong. And Paul's answer is you better figure it out. You better figure it out. You need to come to this key point of doing what is right and coming together in that. Now, I want to say, because everything has to have a disclaimer, and I will disclaim, please do not hear me saying that doctrinal matters and scriptures are not important. They are. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our solution should not be division. We've got to figure it out. We got to come together in this. And so often the issue is ultimately selfishness. Because that's what's happening here. That's what's happening in this group. This is what's happening there in Corinth. Is the reason they cannot come together to a unity of faith and work together is because of selfishness. Somebody has to be right. Somebody has to win. Somebody's got to be in charge rather than deference and seeing themselves as simply servants. And so Paul's message is that we would stop making it about ourselves, that we would not see ourselves as in charge, but as simply servants and nothing more. Because that's the only way we will ever be able to come to the unity of the faith. It's the only way we will be able to work together is we see ourselves as servants who are working together to that goal so that we can be what God has called us to be. And so an important picture, an important warning is given here. And if you weren't sure that that was his trajectory, notice where he goes with it. Chapter four, verse one, in case we have missed the biggie on the eye chart, chapter four, verse one, this is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ. There it is again. (laughs) Paul's going to make sure you got this one. I'm going to say it all throughout these four chapters. Here is the mentality. Here is how to regard yourself. And here is how to see others. We are simply servants and we must be regarded as as that. And notice how he pushes that picture in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Just stop there a minute. I've applied all these things to Apollos and myself for your benefit. All throughout these first few chapters, he's talking about, they're saying, I'm Apollos and I'm Apollos. And he kind of stops here a minute and goes, I get the suspicion that we don't have just people saying, I'm of Paul and I'm Apollos. But they're doing it with the other leaders in the group too. And he's saying, we're applying this to ourselves. We're using ourselves as a model because what you all are doing are lining up after different people within the group. 
Then the congregation, they're part of, well, I like this guy better than that guy. And I follow that guy. Now this is his teaching. He's a better leader. He's a better teacher. Whatever it is. And he's saying, I'm applying these things to us for this purpose. The middle of verse 6. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I'm applying this to ourselves so that you don't have favorites. (laughs) And so that you aren't arrogant. So that you don't puff up one over the other. That's what's going on in that group there. Now here's the way he's going to defeat that. So that they would not look at others that way and elevate others in that light. Verse 7. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? I love this. (laughs) Stop for a minute and think about this. What do you have that you didn't get from God? So why are you elevating people? Why are you making a big deal about yourself? Why are you following humans? What do you have that you didn't get from God? Go ahead and try because it came ultimately from God. Everything we have has come from God. So how could we possibly boast in ourselves? That's the whole point that he gets that in verse seven is telling them if you've received it, why do you boast as if it wasn't this gift to you, as if you've achieved it, you've accomplished it, as if you're something? The whole point is that God must get the glory in everything because everything's from God. The only reason you are able to do anything in God's kingdom is because God has given that to you. And that is our, our, our joining together and our, our place of humility. Nothing that we have has come from ourselves or anywhere else except God. God's it. And he wants them to understand that. How could you possibly have these kinds of divisions and factions and alignments and be behind personalities of this person and that person and all that so often happens when a church goes into fighting and division is the lines are drawn in the sand and it becomes about personalities. And Paul says, how dare you? What do you have that didn't come from God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, let's get to our conclusion. Two points I want to make for the lesson. How is Paul going to move us from selfish thinking to selfless thinking? Number one point that has come through again and again in these four chapters. You are... Where you are because of God. We must never forget this truth. We are where we are because of God. And when we understand that, then only God gets the glory. If the only reason I'm here and the only reason I have what I have And the only reason I have any kind of ability to do any kind of task for God is because of God. Then God gets all the glory. Not me. I have nothing to glorify. It's all God. That's the first point he wants us to get. 
Everything that we have comes from God. I like how Jesus told this parable. One of my favorite parables he tells that really drives this because I think one of the reasons I like is because it has a tendency to make us uncomfortable the way Jesus speaks to us. But listen to this very quick parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 17. You'll notice that Jesus says, which of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat. So here's this picture of you have a servant and he's out there in the field doing all of this work and You say, hey, why don't you come in and just sit down and relax for a while and have a meal? That's not how that went. (laughs) Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you can eat and drink. Does he think that servant because he did what he was commanded? In the same way, I mean, the implied answer is no. In the same way. When you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. There's a great mentality right here. Well, I've done everything that God commanded. First of all, that's not true. (laughs) But let's say you can say that and say, I've done everything God has commanded me to do. Here's God. So you're unworthy servants, and that's what you were supposed to do. There's no gold star for that. That's what you're supposed to do. And so often we can come to God, oh God, look at all that I'm doing for him. I'm absolutely amazing. I can do all of these things. Boy, God sure needs me. This church would fall apart without me. You're kidding yourself. When you have done all that God has commanded, save this to yourself. I am still just an unworthy servant. I'm just grateful to be here. And I'm just glad to have any kind of participation in the kingdom and to contribute what fraction thing I can possibly contribute. I've only done my duty. That's the mentality God wants. We move from selfish to selfless when we see ourselves in that light. Everything that we have is from God. And the only reason we're here is because of God. And the only reason we are able to do whatever it is that we do in this life and for God is because of God. And when we've done it, there's no big star about that. We are simply doing what God has asked. Nobody needs to give you a pat on the back. Nobody needs to shoot fireworks for you. You've just done what God wants. And that should be enough. Which I think is ultimately the second point that Paul has in this section. Is that we can be satisfied as simply servants. That we are to be satisfied and can be satisfied as simply servants. I'll bring you back to chapter 3. A small little paragraph I jumped over because I wanted to save it for right here. Chapter 3 verse 21. Listen to what Paul says. So then, 1 Corinthians 3.21, So then no one is to be boasting in people. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death 
or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Think about what that says. You can be satisfied as a servant because you have everything in Christ. You have it. You don't don't need something else. You have everything you need in Christ. And when we understand that, there's nothing to fight for. There's no, well, you know, I've got to have my set. You already have everything. (laughs) You have it all. You have it in Christ. Everything belongs to you. And so we don't have to seek human glory. We don't have to climb our way to the top. We don't have to have reputation. We don't need to have people pay attention to say, oh, you're something special. Oh, aren't you something great? We don't care. We already have it all. We have all that we need in Christ. We don't need to seek anything else. That's the picture he's giving here. You don't need to fight for anything more. Just breathe, enjoy, relax, and see. You have everything in Christ. And so when it comes to the people of God, when it comes to the local group and the church, we don't have to have prominence. We already have everything. And the different roles that we play in God's kingdom does not change the fact that you have everything in Christ. Whatever role you play, and whether people know it or not, it doesn't matter because you have everything in Christ. All things are ours as we belong to him. If we will see ourselves as servants, As servants of Jesus, we have it all. Therefore, keep serving, giving God the glory as you enjoy everything there is to enjoy in the kingdom of God. We are nothing more than servants of his. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Let's just start by begging forgiveness, Lord, for how many times we do not see ourselves as servants. Forgive us for when we have not behaved as servants and we have not yielded our lives as servants. Forgive us for the times that we have tried to make ourselves important. Forgive us when we have tried to seek after glory. Forgive us when we've tried to make much of ourselves instead of you. Lord, help us to see how much we have because we belong to you. Help us to understand that we have nothing more to fight for and we have nothing more that we need and that we enjoy everything because of you. Lord, we pray that we would have selfless hearts hearts that think only for you and others and not ourselves help us to see ourselves merely as servants put that within our hearts and hold that firmly in our minds about who we are no matter what role we play 
Lord, we thank you for the various abilities and talents that you have given to everyone here in this room. And Lord, we thank you that we are able to work together and contribute together and use these gifts together in such a way so that you are glorified. Lord, we thank you for the peace that this congregation has enjoyed for so long. We pray that it would continue. We pray that everyone in this room would continue to have a desire to be unified, that we would always seek to be of the same mind and have the same purpose, that in everything that we do, you're glorified and not us. Help us never to forget it. Help us to always seek your glory in all that we do. And help us to always take a step back and let your name and your honor and your praise be all that matters in all that we do in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Powerful picture that the Apostle Paul gives of the life of being a servant of his. We help you be a servant of God this very morning. Jesus served so that we could enjoy the benefits of belonging to him. The benefits of belonging to the kingdom of God and have to have the ability to say, everything is ours. When she belonged to Christ, when you belong to the kingdom, it's all ours. We're enjoying everything that could possibly be to enjoy. And we want to make that offer to you, that you turn away from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him faithfully with all of your heart. Is there anything we can do to help you this very morning?